0: Hello and welcome to The Development Podcast from the World Bank Group coming to you from the United States and beyond. I'm Raka Banerjee alongside Paul Blake.
1: In today's show, is the world facing
2: a food crisis and why are prices climbing so high? Ukraine accelerated what was already going on, which is this very fragile system that's reaching these tipping points more and more frequently. We are facing a massive crisis and there's a lot of problems out there and the way to fix it is to fix the food system overall.
0: We're talking inflation, Ukraine, and asking how people are coping with a supply chain crunch. We get the lowdown from one business in Cairo.
3: This is something that's been a daily topic of conversation for the last five years. (laughs) I think the daily conversation is when is the price hike going to stop?
0: How critical is the global situation and what is being done to tackle it?
1: All that and more coming up over the next few minutes here on The Development Podcast. So, Raka, when we've chatted, it, it seems to me that a lot of your work here at the World Bank has focused on agricultural statistics. What do we know about what's happening in terms of agriculture and food in the world right now?
0: Well, as of a couple of weeks ago, the agricultural price index was up 42% compared to January last year. And that is a massive increase in prices. And when we look at the increases for specific crops, they're even more alarming. Um, Just to name two, maize is up 55% and wheat is up almost double, a staggering 91%.
1: And how much of that has to do with the the war in Ukraine?
0: It's not everything, but the war has definitely played a significant role. So together, Ukraine and Russia produce 15% of the world's wheat, but 30% of world wheat exports and 60% of the world's sunflower oil. And after Canada... Russia and Belarus are the number two and number three producers of potash, which is a critical ingredient for fertilizer. And fertilizer prices are now almost three times higher than they were a year ago, which is almost definitely going to affect food production across crops and regions in the coming months.
1: So you're mentioning both some significant increases, some worrying numbers, and and you mentioned there at the end different regions. Can you give us some concrete examples?
0: So the Middle East, actually, the World Bank says that already fragile countries like Syria, Lebanon and Yemen are of particular concern. So Syria imports almost two thirds of its food and oil from Ukraine and Russia, as well as most of its wheat, which comes from Russia specifically. Um, 90% of Lebanon's grain is sourced from Russia and Ukraine. And in Yemen, where food insecurity is already acute, 40% of wheat is imported from those two countries. So this war and the impact on food exports at a time where we're already seeing rising inflation, it's a huge shock for countries that are already really struggling as a result of the pandemic.
1: So this trend in, in rising prices, and including food prices, that predates the war in Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken, right? What, what's the backdrop here?
0: Yeah, the, the FAO, uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, it publishes an annual report called The State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World. And the most recent edition from 2021 reported that the global prevalence of moderate or severe food insecurity has been slowly increasing, actually since back in 2014. However, in 2020, the increase was as much as the previous five years combined.
1: So just wrapping my head around that, the increase in 2020 was equal to the previous five years all added up, that, that, that seems like a pretty huge, significant jump. And I'm assuming related to the pandemic, What does that number translate to in terms of actual people suffering from hunger?
0: So according to the UN, before the pandemic, the estimate for the number of people suffering from severe food insecurity was 135 million. And today it's 276 million. So
1: jumping from 135 to 276 million.
0: That's right. That's right. Just double, yeah. And just to be clear, severe food insecurity is really serious, right? That means actually running out of food, experiencing hunger. Uh, it means having to go entire days without being able to eat. If we're that's for severe food insecurity, but if we're looking at you know more moderate uh, definitions of undernourishment or lacking access to adequate food, the numbers are even larger.
1: And. Can you remind me, Like, has there been a period in time where we've experienced something similar?
0: Yeah, actually, people are drawing parallels to the 2007-2008 food price crisis. You know, people remember the, the banking crisis and the economic shocks to the financial system at that time. But there was actually also an acute rise in food prices and a resulting crisis because prices for food and agricultural products more than doubled between early 2007 and mid-2008. Actually, that's when people realized how little we knew about the agricultural sector in general. And that's why I started working at the World Bank. There was a huge push at that time to improve agricultural statistics. And as a result of the crisis, it's estimated that 155 million people in emerging markets and developing economies were pushed into extreme poverty.
1: That's extraordinary. I mean, 7 08 wasn't that long ago. And the idea that we didn't know as much, or, or didn't didn't have a, a sense of how significant the situation was. That that I don't know, a bit mind blowing.
0: Yeah, no, I mean the good news is we have a lot more data now. Uh, the bad news is it's 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 still really bad.
1: Well, as we've just heard, supply chain disruptions due to the war in Ukraine have led to price increases on top of price increases. And these are a growing concern for countries which import a lot of their food, in particular their grains. We're going to be getting some insights in a few minutes from the World Bank's Julian Lampietti on the big picture for global food supplies. But first, let's focus in on North Africa, specifically Egypt.
0: Bread is very much a dietary staple in Egypt for a high percentage of its population and the country imports a lot of its wheat from Ukraine and Russia. So with prices up and ongoing concerns over supply, how are people in the hospitality sector coping? What happens when your entire business model is based on bread?
1: Let's hear from busy and bustling Cairo. Producer Sarah Treanor spoke to one restaurateur about her business and how food costs are an everyday topic of conversation.
0: Traffic sounds in Egypt's megacity, Cairo, with a rapidly growing population of over 10 million. An increasing population means increasing demand for food, and with price rises, this is a daily concern for many, especially those in
3: industries which rely on food imports. My name is Darin Akkad. I am based uh, in Cairo, Egypt. I live here with uh, my husband and uh, three children. I'm a passionate bread maker. I started making bread when I was pregnant with my uh, first child, and I uh, haven't stopped since. I think it's just, the smell of bread is the best smell in the world. Doreen took her passion for bread
0: making and turned it into a business, a restaurant called What The Crust.
3: So we specialize in making authentic, uh, traditional Neapolitan pizza. We kind of have a seal of approval from the Associazione Verace Pizza Napolitana, which is uh, an organization based in Naples. Let's say it tries to protect and promote uh, the traditions of uh, the authentic Neapolitan pizza. So that means a lot of my ingredients come from that specific region of Italy, which is Campania.
0: But what about the
3: bread itself? It's it's just flour, water, and salt, you know, and maybe some yeast. And bread, says Doreen, plays a big role in Egyptian life. I think this is something that's often said when people talk about bread in Egypt: is that the word for life in in Arabic, in Egyptian Arabic, is aish, and uh, and it's also the word for bread. So, life and bread. <laughs> Are, you know, are, are one word, and I think that just explains everything about how Egyptians feel you know, about their bread. In Egyptian culture today, we still make bread the way the pharaohs made them uh, in like, rural areas of Egypt. We still use the same, uh, they call this baladi oven, so like the local original oven that the pharaohs used. That, mean, that also means that Egypt <laughs> has a problem with supply because this is a growing population. We're over 100 million people. We consume more bread than we produce. So uh, most of the wheat uh, that is used in the making of everybody's daily bread it has to be imported.
0: But the latest food price rises that Doreen has
3: seen come on top of already escalating costs. I mean, this has been a subject of conversation already for... At least five years, you know everything's always getting more expensive, and unfortunately, the salaries aren't uh, increasing uh, you know in in parallel with the the inflation rate. this is an ongoing crisis let's say for us so we we're in in a position where we kind of have to wait and see what's going to happen next we've kind of because we we rely on imports we've had to buy things in bulk so every you know we get a shipment every few months you know we have to you know do some demand planning and try to forecast how much wheat and cheese and tomatoes we're going to be using and so far because i mean these events have been happening over the last three months uh, we've been using up the stock that we've had and that we've paid for before this price hike but we have a new shipment coming and we know that everything's gotten more expensive but we can't really find out how much more expensive until it actually you know gets cleared and and passes through the customs and this means increasing pizza prices inevitably we're going to have to increase our pizza prices we haven't had to so far but we we have to wait and see by how much Jareen says that food costs are never far from people's minds. Definitely, I mean, again, this is something that's been a daily topic of conversation for the last five years. <laughs> I think the daily conversation is how much worse. When is the price hike going to stop? The, a watermelon now is for eighty Egyptian pounds, and and you know, for many Egyptians, that might that might be their daily wage. You know, and and they're most certainly not going to spend it on. A watermelon. <laughs> Switching to homegrown produce is one route that she wants to explore. One of the ways that we have to plan is uh, to find products that we can create uh, that rely less heavily on imports and more so on on locally grown ingredients, or let's say even if it's locally processed ingredients. You know, I know we don't make enough wheat in Egypt and that some of the flour, Egyptian flour that we use is actually originally maybe Ukrainian, but I believe that, you know, given the right uh, training, you know, we could achieve world-class produce in Egypt without having to import it. I'm gonna look for ways, to you know, either start growing my food myself or making my own cheese, uh, maybe trying to see if that is something we can even export, you know? And we're trying to find ways to, you know, use our brand equity, to stay alive and promise better things, <laughs> and that those better things are going to depend less on imports and more on local products.
1: The pretty enticing sounds of bread going into the oven at What the Crust restaurant in Cairo. Thanks to Sarah Triner for that report and to Dorina Akkad for speaking to us.
0: Well, listening to that was Julian Lampietti, manager for global engagement in the agriculture and food practice here at the World Bank.
1: Julian, welcome, and thanks for being with us today. David Malpass, the, the World Bank president, said last month that the world faces, quote, a human catastrophe from a food price crisis related to the war in Ukraine.
2: Those are some pretty strong words. Uh, just how acute is the problem? Thank you for having me, and thank you both uh, for this. So. We are facing a crisis, there is no doubt. Now, it's due to a whole confluence of factors. And I think what we're seeing is a a tipping point in the system. The war in Ukraine just accelerated what was already happening. We have this food system that feeds us and is wonderful, but it's also destroying the planet as it does that. And it's getting more and more unstable And we're facing the second food crisis in 10 years. Ukraine accelerated what was already going on, which is this very fragile system that's reaching these tipping points more and more frequently. So we are facing a massive crisis. And there's a lot of problems out there. And the way to fix it is to fix the food system overall.
0: When we're talking about the overall food system, are we talking about availability issues or people's access to food or the production of food?
2: Well, so different crises have different origins. And if we go back to 2008, it was definitely a question of availability. There were certain markets where a rice market in particular, which is a very thinly traded, and uh, you had a shock there that then started translating to all the other markets in the case of this crisis that we're facing today, it's definitely an access problem rather than an availability problem. So, you know, on, on a large scale, um, Ukraine is less than 2% of the total amount of grain produced in the world. And so it's a fairly small fraction. It is a big part of what's traded, though. So between Ukraine and Russia, we're talking about 30% of what's traded. So since 2008, the world has increased production by about five billion tons, and stocks have increased by about 300 million tons. So there's more food in the world today than there was before, and there's more than enough to go around. The problem is it's not in the right place and available to the right people that really need it. it well, what's creating that problem? Like, what, wh- why
1: isn't it in the right place? Why isn't it- getting to the right people?
2: So I think that um, a lot of it started with COVID and the supply chain problems we started seeing with COVID. You know, you remember that the farmers had plenty of food on the farm, uh, but they weren't able to get that to the grocery stores. And right here in Washington, D.C., you could go to the grocery store and not find basic things like flour. That didn't mean that flour wasn't there somewhere. I mean, the wheat was being produced. We've had higher yields in the last few years than ever before in history. But getting that from the farm to the fork is a complicated, cumbersome process that involves lots of different players. And um, COVID really disrupted that supply chain. You know, basic people getting sick all along the supply chain, not being able to move things, different kinds of trade issues that started. And, uh, you know, then it starts getting exacerbated when the price of goods starts going up due to inflation and all sorts of other factors that and are going on
1: and i imagine those supply chains didn't they weren't built and they didn't evolve assuming that a you know once in a century pandemic was going to come around and and uh, disrupt things so
2: it, well exactly and and what we've seen is we've seen that our uh, agricultural markets and systems have become increasingly concentrated so You may remember all the problems we had with uh, meat in this country, in in the U.S. And so there's four big slaughterhouses through which something like 80% of the meat is processed in the United States. And people start getting sick and dropping out of those slaughterhouses. You have a major shortage. And uh, at a global level... Our supply chains are very concentrated, and that makes them very fragile to disruptions. And so the Black Sea is a major conduit for grain out of countries like Ukraine and Russia and Belarus into the Middle East. And suddenly that's mined and blockaded, and it disrupts the entire system, and it's really hard to figure out how to route everything in different ways, and it's very expensive to do that.
1: Well, speaking in the Middle East, we heard just a few minutes ago from Doreen in Cairo, and she was talking about how food prices have been rising for a number of years and, and how it's affecting her and her business. Looking ahead, do you think the situation could actually get worse, in, in
2: in especially in the short term? Yeah, great question, and one that really keeps me up at night. So it can definitely get worse, and the reason it can get worse is that— um, The prices of fertilizer, the prices of agricultural inputs overall, and the cost of capital are all going up really, really quickly. And when those things go up and the farmer's not able to make additional money uh, growing their crops, you know, their incentives to produce a lot more start going away. All of the large food-producing Countries like Brazil or the U.S. or others are big fertilizer importers, so the shortages of fertilizers that we're seeing are going to cause problems. And uh, you know, we really need to focus on how to get production going and get that fertilizer moving around the world so that we don't have a shortage or a shortfall next year.
0: You mentioned, you know, the two thousand seven, two thousand eight food price crisis. What were the lessons learned from that time? Now that we're again facing these. Huge food price And increases. maybe give
2: a little history of what that crisis was for, for folks who might not know. So that crisis really started in uh, the rice markets. And um, what we saw was a rapid transmission to all sorts of other agricultural markets. And what we observed globally is very low levels of storage of uh, big agricultural commodities. They had been going down for years and very low levels of agricultural investment and production. So that combination of factors, as well as a number of others, really contributed to this rapid escalation of prices that then went down with the response, but then went back up again a couple of years later until they finally petered out. And uh, we put in place an architecture that seemed to improve a lot of what we did. One of the things we learned is that If we have better information about what's going on and where the food is and what the stocks are, people get less panicky. And I'll give you a very specific example. My wife, when there's an announcement of a snowstorm in Washington D.C., she runs down to the grocery store and buys more groceries, even if our pantry is full. And that just creates a shortage in the grocery store for the next person. And so. We need to make sure that people are getting the right information and they know that there's plenty of food out there and that people are working on getting it to them so that we don't actually shoot ourselves in the foot in this process. Other key lessons are it's really important to move quickly and in a timely way to get people enough that they can pay for the food they need, You know, for the hungry people, for the people that are facing nutrition. people. Uh, problems for the poor people. And cash transfers are generally the very best way to do that. So rapidly expanding social safety nets in order to respond to a food crisis are really key. And then the second is you need to stop people from engaging in bad behavior discourage them from doing things that are actually making the problem worse. So you don't want to see people hoarding, you don't want to see people creating export bans and other things like that. And I would say those are two really important lessons that come out of uh, the previous crisis.
0: So basically information, getting information to people and getting support to people who really need it. You mentioned all this, also the, the supply chain, you know, that part of, part of the information is letting people know that the food stocks are there and it's just about getting it to them. How do those issues get resolved?
2: Well, you know, the, the food markets of the world are the largest, most sophisticated markets and they work really, really well. I mean, you're, you know, we're connecting 600 million food producers with 8 billion consumers at a global level. That's amazing if you think about it. And we need to let those markets work and do their thing and, uh, and providing information, providing liquidity where there's constraints in uh, financing, making sure that people have access to the right inputs and uh, information are all ways we can enable these markets to work and really discourage people from engaging in sort of beggar-their-neighbor policies and other kinds of activities that stop those markets from working properly.
1: We're talking about this human catastrophe, this this food crisis that's happening. Where is it happening right now? Is it in the immediate vicinity of the war in Ukraine? Is it global? What,
2: what can we say about where this is happening? So what we know is it's made uh, problems in uh, particularly large food importing and wheat importing countries uh, much worse. And so uh, places like Afghanistan and Yemen, that we're already facing very difficult situations are now facing even harder ones. And uh, I think it was David Beasley, the head of the World Food Program, who said the other day, you know, they've gotten to the point, the food's gotten so expensive to import because it was coming in from the Black Sea region, that now they're taking from uh, the hungry to feed the starving. And so all those uh, usual hotspots are a problem, and now we're starting to see a lot of hotspots emerge in. Uh, for example, the Horn of Africa, parts of West Africa, and of course the Middle East countries. You know, most of them are fairly well off, but they're starting to to really face some challenges because they have such a large uh, import bill.
0: Going back to the the interview with uh, Doreen, the restaurant owner in Cairo, and she was talking about wanting to source ingredients more locally and more sustainably. And I'm wondering, are there agricultural and food technologies that can help to feed a growing population sustainably?
2: So, there are lots of technologies, and there's going to be a lot more agri tech investment that's going on. This is a really, really hot area. And I mean, I'm sure you've heard about biotechnology and all the incredible things that can be done with that, sometimes controversial. The one I want to focus on is this idea of the application of digital technology in agriculture, which I think is really going to be transformative. And you think about it, digital technology is really about passing information from one place to another faster, and um, Mm -hmm. collecting it faster, and processing it faster. And I can, uh, if you think about fertilizer, and the problems, you know, the price of fertilizer's gone way up. Uh, It's hard to get. And uh, what can we do? Well, we can use digital technology to be much more specific and accurate in our application of that fertilizer in the field. Uh, when I was a kid growing up and I drove a tractor around, we would pour the fertilizer into the hopper and drive around and spread it all over the field, and then we we're done. Uh, today, that tractor, has a GPS system, it has all sorts of sensors on it, and it puts just the right amount of fertilizer in just the right place. So you could be much more efficient. Now, you could translate those technologies from large farmers to small farmers. It requires investment, it requires extension, but it can be done. And so increasing the efficiency of fertilizer use in a situation where you're facing these high prices and problems for farmers in terms of putting it on their fields is a really good way to deal uh, with the kind of challenge we're facing today and hopefully um, enable us to have good cropping seasons in the next few years since so the potential silver lining higher prices could lead to that
1: investment that would ultimately benefit people in developing
2: countries yeah, so exactly right the higher prices will force the advent of some of these new technologies there's also incredible things that happen in a supply chain due to digital technologies, and precisely around the idea of local sourcing. So just think about how during COVID, people started, uh, municipalities, counties started putting all their farmers online and the products they had on their farms, and so people could actually go straight to those farms to get the products that they couldn't get in the grocery stores because they were blocked for various reasons, right? And that kind of dissemination of information could help our Egyptian baker figure out where there is local wheat that they could source to put into their products more easily and at a lower cost. So one way I like to think about it is that if you have uh, these 600 million farmers and these eight billion consumers and all the food is passing through these really narrow supply chains, very concentrated supply chains, you become very fragile. And if you can use technology, information technology to connect those producers in what would be a web as opposed to a single supply chain, you're going to build a much stronger architecture, just like a spider's web with lots of lines going between all the different points.
0: Can you share about how the World Bank is responding to this crisis? Is it you know, kind of helping to develop these kinds of networks.
2: We're doing uh, a lot of things about this. And uh, as you probably know, we just announced a $30 billion program to respond to the crisis. We're working very closely with the G7 and other like-minded groups to support uh, a global effort around this to make sure that we are analyzing the problem and figuring out uh, where the resources should go. It's really four big buckets of what we want to do going forward. One is we absolutely have to make sure that the hungry and the poor are getting what they need to uh, be fed and to be safe. Uh, the second is we need to make sure we're not doing silly things when it comes to trade, to keep trade trade open and encourage countries to trade with each other. The third is really getting... Uh, the farmers what they need to keep farming and to respond to the opportunity that is here. So creating a supply response for the next two years as we weather the storm around fertilizer and fuel prices. And then fourth, everything we do needs to be tied to building a more resilient food system. Rather than uh, destroying our planet as we try to feed ourselves, is a system that can be a great sink for Uh, greenhouse gases. It can be a great home for biodiversity. It can be a creator of environmental values. It can be a source of good nutrition, and on and on and on, and good jobs, uh, rather than the opposite, which is what's going on now. Julian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Julian Lampietti, who
1: I just learned is not just an economist, but a farmer himself, joined me here in the studio in Washington, D.C.
0: Well, that's about it for this episode of The Development Podcast.
1: As always, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us an email at thedevelopmentpodcast at worldbank.org.
0: From me, Rock of Energy, and my buddy, Paul Blake, we'll see you next time.